thank you and I greet you this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to try to do something this morning that I've never done before, which means I guess that I'm comfortable enough with you now to openly fail and fall flat on my face. Depending on how this goes, I may never do it again, but I'm going to, I'm going to try to preach through an entire book of the Bible with you. One of the reasons I do that is because you're so accustomed to long sermons and it makes me so happy. I can do stuff like that. So turn to your Bible to Psalm 1. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to preach the entire Psalms. I would ask you to turn to the little book of Philemon. The little book of Philemon, just before Hebrews. By all accounts, this little book is the most intimate and personal of all of the writings of the Apostle Paul that we find in the Bible. It's, it's kind of intriguing to me that the Holy Spirit decided that the final version of the Bible would be incomplete without this little bitty letter. What I'm going to do is I will, as is your custom, ask you to stand, if you could, for the reading of the text. We'll pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Here is the word of God. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, and I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you, for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But... Without your consent, I didn't want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time also, prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with 
your spirit. Thank you. You may be seated. Father, help us as we spend some time in this wonderful little book. May it encourage our hearts. May, may it make us more like the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. There really aren't any unique insights into theology found in this little book that we couldn't find elsewhere in the New Testament. In fact, as we read through this, you may have noticed you don't find much in the way of explicit Christian doctrine at all. Philemon is not going to be referenced, in, uh, at least referenced a lot in systematic theologies and so forth. Second and third John are short letters like this, but even those little letters contain some pretty significant and hard-hitting instructions and Christian doctrine. But this little book here, Philemon, is a friendly, somewhat light-hearted, whimsical letter that I think made Philemon chuckle when he read it for the first time, and I'll try to point that out to you as we go along. The backstory to this little book, you know pretty well, but here's, here's what we gather, just trying to piece together little bits of information. Philemon, to, uh, to whom the letter was written and after whom it was named, was a rather wealthy member of the church at Colossae, uh, to whom the book of Colossians was written. We know that Philemon was wealthy for two reasons. The first, because Paul indicates in verse 2 that his house was apparently big enough for the church to use as a meeting place. We don't know how big the, the Colossian church was, but we do know that, like all first century churches, they didn't, like you do, own their own building, uh, which was dedicated for the meeting of worship. They just congregated in houses that were large enough to, to hold them. The second reason we know that Philemon is a man of some means is because he had at least one slave. And that slave is going to be the occasion for the writing of this letter. I suppose now is really as good a time as any to address the fact that here is a Christian man who owns slaves. And Paul doesn't scream at him for being oppressive and being ungodly for owning slaves. Because of the history of slavery in our nation from 150 years ago and prior, it's, it's really almost unthinkable and immoral, even to the, to the godless portions of our society, that slavery could be anything but wicked. And therefore, slave owners could be anything but evil. And so the book of Philemon... You might say it sort of suffers from the absence of Paul offering up a gigantic diatribe against the institution of slavery. It would be a little more comfortable to us if he would do so. So when we preach through portions of Scripture like Exodus 21 or this little book of Philemon, it sort of leaves us in an uncomfortable position because, because the morals of the unsaved world seem like they're almost higher than the Morals of the Bible. Exodus 21, we, don't, we won't look there, but you can check later. That lays down God's Old Testament guidelines for owning slaves. And, and you get the feeling that even if God isn't a huge fan of slavery, He's not trying as hard as He could to put an end to it. He could have added an 11th commandment, right? Thou shalt not buy nor sell slaves. So let me just try to make a couple of observations to help us think through uh, the issue of slavery 
That was such a scourge on our nation, but in the Bible it seems like it was at least tolerated, even if it was regulated. And slavery is, in the Bible at least, never condemned in as strong of terms as, as we might like. And the first is this, that American slavery, as we think of it, was, mar- was married to and was defined by racism. So the justification for slavery was something to the effect of these, these Africans are not people like us, they're inferior and they're worthless. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, the, what Pastor Ken is dealing with down in Arizona, that rationale is the rationale that justified slavery in the United States in the 1860s is very similar to the rationale for justifying abortion, right? They're not really people like we are. They're inferior. They are, they are essentially worthless. When people in our nation began to come to terms with something so simple as the equality of the humanity of the African people, really the institution of slavery in the States began to crumble under its own weight. The foundation for its justification was gone, and really that house began to topple, and, and we hope that by God's grace that will happen in the realm of abortion as well someday soon. Racism wasn't necessarily a part of ancient slavery. Slaves were not always considered viable members of society, but, but that valuation was really rooted in one's slave status, not, not in their race. Racism, when you mix racism and slavery, you, get a, you really get a toxic elixir, if you will. And, and thankfully, that, that did make our nation sick and throw it up and throw it out. The second observation we'll make is this, that slavery in, in this day here in Philemon was not only a way of life, for some it was the only way to live. And here's, here's what I mean by that. If you lived in this day and age here, uh, when Philemon was written, and, and you were a business owner and your business failed, you didn't have the luxury and the protection of filing chapter 11 bankruptcy. You didn't have that sort of wonderful legal system that we have that protects us. You couldn't start your business as a limited liability corporation. If you defaulted on your debts, you didn't have any system of laws that kept you out of prison. They would sell everything you had, and if you still had, or and if you still had debts, you just sold yourself. You became a slave, sometimes along even with your wife and your children. And frankly, for your wife and kids, probably better to be slaves than to be starving. At least slaves were fed. Your family didn't have the option of food stamps or public welfare, and that's why the prodigal son, of course, concluded it would be better to be a slave in his father's house because despite the shame, the humiliation, and the general discomfort of being a slave, at least there was some food to be eaten. Because slavery wasn't attached to racism and because anyone could be subject to falling into slavery and anyone, by God's grace and good providence, might at some point be released from slavery or, or re-enter society as a free man or even become a part of the family of their owners, occasionally you might have someone that was highly educated, highly trained, fall into slavery for, for whatever reason, perhaps a, a, a banker, uh, had investments that failed him and, and he would become a slave to his investor. And if that's the case, really what a, what a great person to have 
train your kids mathematics. A banker that you happen to have living in the apartment above the garage. So slaves could be tutors, they could be skilled laborers, they, they could be highly valuable to their owners, they, they could be considered a part of the family. The end of verse 16 hints that Onesimus may really have been very much a part of Philemon's family. And I don't say all that to justify the institution of slavery. I don't, I don't want anybody to think I, I want it brought back. But, but I do want it to recognize the fact that sometimes we're tempted to try to apologize for the Bible uh, because the Bible is so unenlightened, if you will, that it doesn't know enough to decry slavery in the strongest of terms. I, I hope you can feel at least a little bit of that tension. In, in key moments when slavery is discussed, it might feel to you or to me that it really fails to say what we wish it would. For instance, Colossians 3.22, which would have been directly addressed to the church at Philemon's house, would have been directly addressed to Philemon and to his slaves. Paul writes this in the end of Colossians 3. Slaves, in all things, obey your masters uh, here on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, slaves, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. He's going to speak to the masters, saying, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. I don't know how it makes you feel when Paul says, Grant your slaves justice and fairness, but doesn't mean let them go. That may be a struggle for you. How is it even possible to grant justice without freedom? Aren't they really the same thing? That would have been a really good place to make this divinely inspired call for the abolition of all slavery for all time, and the Holy Spirit just doesn't do it here. And so that's part of the challenge that believers, as believers in the particular society we find ourselves, really our society seems to have a higher bar of morality in this particular area than, than the Bible does. And we're going to be tempted again to want to apologize for the Bible or try to explain them away. Because if we don't, people might think we wish slavery was back. We don't, but, but, but in our day, if you're not raging against the evils of intolerance, the evils of non-diversity, the evils of slavery, if you're not, if you're not weeping loudly, uh, as loudly as is required to prove your self-loathing over white history, you really are a terrible person. We're required in our society to celebrate what is celebrated, condemn what is condemned, and all that without thinking and without qualification. And if we fall under that pressure, really, we'll come to a, a little book like Philemon and say, we're kind of sorry this is here. Uh, if it helps, we don't talk about it very much. So I just want to encourage you, uh, challenge you and encourage you right on the front end to think carefully and clearly when the morals of the Bible and the morals of our society begin to diverge from each other. You know well that in terms of human sexuality, the Bible vehemently condemns what our society celebrates, and we've got that issue to wrestle with. And in terms of slavery, the Bible seems more or less indifferent to what our society vehemently condemns. And so on the other side, we've got that issue we have to wrestle with. Anyway, we left the beaten path where Philemon owned at least one slave, and that slave's name was Onesimus, which rather ironically means useful. And so Mr. Useful decided to run away one day. We don't know why, but, but I 
think we could presume it wasn't because of any sort of mistreatment at the hands of Philemon, who seems, at least in Paul's opinion, to be an upstanding fellow, as we'll see. But it does create somewhat of an interesting dilemma. What does a Christian do when his slave runs away? <laughs> what would you do if you owned a slave that ran away? Well, Onesimus presumably ran to Rome where Paul was sitting in prison. We don't know why he went to Rome. Some have speculated that he just wanted to get lost in the sea of humanity there. Though from the country, I always think, just run where there's no people. Why would you run to the people if you want to disappear? But if you're from the city, maybe that's what you do. Um, <clears throat> apparently, on, on his way out the door, Onesimus helped himself to some of Philemon's money. So for a time, he would have some spending money. And so while he's in Rome, Onesimus runs into the Apostle Paul. Now, I was thinking about this, and I, I thought, I wonder how many people down at the Pine County Jail where, near where I live I've met recently. And the answer is none. And the reason is I really don't go to the Pine County Jail. I haven't been tossed in there, and I, I, I don't go there to make uh, social acquaintances. And so the fact that Onesimus ran into the Apostle Paul indicates to me probably that he found himself sitting in prison with him for whatever reason. Probably he had some of Philemon's money and he thought he would go and have himself a good time and got himself into some trouble and wound up for a while sitting in prison. While in prison, Paul did what Paul does and that is shares the gospel with his new with his new friend, and Onesimus is converted, and he becomes a Christian, and he becomes a dear friend of Paul. And so apparently for a time, Onesimus just sort of hung around helping Paul, who was remaining in prison. He just helped Paul whenever and however he could. Maybe he helped round up meals for him. There was not such a thing as three squares in state prisons in those days. You had to have friends and family bring you your meals. Maybe he helped Paul gather up writing materials or whatever could be of service to this apostle. It's at this, th this point that things really get interesting. Paul is an apostle, right? He writes Bible, for goodness sake. When he puts down his pen, it's Bible that comes out of it. Paul has been taught by Jesus. He's been appointed by Jesus. He speaks with Jesus' authority. Paul is Philemon's friend. How interesting that this runaway slave should belong to his dear friend. So here's the dilemma. What, what do we do? What should Onesimus, the runaway slave, do? What should Paul do? What should Philemon do? And we've, we've got this fun dynamic of slave and master and apostle, and the apostle is friends with the master. In some sense, the slave is serving the apostle, but he is not serving his master. The master is a good and godly man, but he has been robbed by his slave. That's, that's a loss to him and his family. Now, if you've been around people long enough, I think you'll recognize that this is potentially a really explosive situation. There's a lot of things that can go wrong in the interpersonal dynamics right here. Philemon could insist on having his legal rights and and that could irritate Paul, and that could really put Onesimus in great danger, great physical danger. Paul could insist that Philemon forego all his legal rights and offend his friend by seeming like he's insensitive to what Philemon lost. Onesimus is now not only Philemon's runaway slave, he's now his brother in the Lord, 
And so presumably, when Onesimus gets home, they're going to stand in Philemon's living room on the next Sunday and share a hymn book and sing the same songs. And if, that, if you don't feel something like that, then I apologize for failing you here. One of the interpretive challenges of this little letter is, is just trying to, to complete a sentence like this. Paul wants Philemon to read this letter and what? What is Paul looking for? Paul perhaps wants Philemon to forgive Onesimus, but, but what does that mean? Does forgive mean set him free? Does it mean take him back? Does it just mean not throw him in jail and have him mercilessly beaten like runaway slaves often were? Maybe Paul wants Philemon to send Onesimus back to him. Look in verse 13, you get a sense of that. I wanted to keep him with me, so send him back. Maybe Philemon, um, or, or, or maybe uh, I, or Philemon should maintain the legal ownership of, Phile- of Onesimus. Sorry, I get my characters wrong. Maybe Philemon, the master, should maintain ownership of Onesimus and then send him back so that Onesimus is really under orders to serve Paul as a possibility. We know in verse 17 that Philemon wants, or Paul wants Philemon to accept Onesimus. He says, accept him just like you would me. Accept Onesimus just like Paul. What does that mean? As an equal, as a friend, as a brother, but what about debtor and slave? And these are all issues that have to be dealt with and you have to deal with them very carefully or, or you could probably see how this could go badly for Philemon. It could go really badly for Onesimus. It could even go badly for Paul himself. So because it's this sort of explosive situation, at least potentially, just for the remainder of our time, I, I, wanna, I just want to kind of ponder through this as we sort of work our way around this book. I'm not going to start in verse 1 and work down. We're just going to kind of swim around in it. I just want to give you a a feel for this book. We'll just kind of marinate ourselves in it. How do godly people behave themselves in situations that are potentially explosive? You know what this sort of thing is like. You know when a, when a little issue pops up and you think, this could be the big one. Okay? I can see a fight happening. I can see conflict. I can see trouble. And when that's on the horizon, how do godly people behave themselves? More specifically, how does, how does Paul, the apostle, He's really the spiritual authority. He's the leader here. He's the one speaking for God. How does he approach this situation? The advent of the internet, thank you Al Gore, and blogging has created the sort of global battlefield in which Christians can walk into the blogosphere and slug it out with other Christians. I don't know if you've witnessed that or watched that battlefield. I wander into it from time to time, but... But after just a, f- a little while, it all just kind of feels dirty to me. There's, if you walk into the conflict on the Christian internet, quote-unquote, there's fighting and accusations and judgmentalism and, and uh, fields of flogged straw men all over the place, and it's just crazy. And, and, and people say, you can't be a Christian, and that would be like gasoline on a fire, but the fires are already raging so hot that no matter how much... Ga- Gasoline you dump on it can hardly get any hotter. That's the way of discourse today. That's the way of even Christian conflict. We confront, we argue, we fight, and rarely, if ever, do we come together and overcome our differences, settle our issues, and live at peace together. That's really not what we do as an American society anymore. 
It's a pushing, bullying, demanding society in which we defeat opposition, we don't persuade them. And that's just sort of the nature of impersonal communication that takes place between strangers today. And that is unfortunately easily imported into the church. We can get used to disagreements being handled together the way that we see them dealt with in the public sphere of Christianity. And so I, wanna, I, I know this sense, I know this feeling when there's a potential conflict beginning to arise, no matter how small it is. Here we go again. Here we go again. And then we follow that up with, you're a really terrible person and you need to repent. That's just sort of what we do and we wonder how it gets blown up. And then the church... This is not just my church, I hope. I, I think the broader church is famous for having huge brawls over insignificant issues that they, we simply just can't figure them out. Uh, I think Jonathan Swift was probably speaking something along these lines when he wrote Gulliver's Travels and the massive war between the big enders and the little enders. This is part of human nature to make massive fights out of which end of the boiled egg you start peeling from. So the book of Philemon is, we're going to look at it this morning as a primer or a primer for dealing with these touchy, sensitive, potentially explosive situations, and we'll look at it largely from the perspective of the Apostle Paul. Now that's a really long, winding introduction. Now we're going to jump in, and I only have seven things to run run by you here, and they should be pretty quick. Number one. When we approach a situation that's potentially explosive, particularly as leadership, be prepared. Be prepared. Now, preparation is something that has to happen long before any sort of crisis takes place. Preparation is the groundwork you lay in the good times and and you use it to help you in the bad times. Paul's preparation for this crisis, I want you to see it, is found in verses 4 to 7. And in verse 4 to 7, we find that Paul regularly prays for Philemon, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers. This is, a, this is interesting to me because Paul started lots of churches and he knew lots of people and he prayed for them. He prayed apparently for the churches in general, but he also prayed for the people in those churches by name. Sometimes when we think about praying for someone, we're almost always talking about God giving them something they don't have or making them something they aren't. But in Paul's case, especially in verse 5, he prays prayers of thanksgiving concerning Philemon. He prays something like, God, thank you for the love that Philemon has for the members of his church. Thank you for his faith in Christ. And, And being thankful for someone's maturity in Christ really helps those of us who pray not only focus on the ways in which our, our brothers or our sisters are broken and the ways in which they're lacking, but it helps us recognize that who they already are is, by God's grace, a benefit to the church. I, I know in my own heart, my own critical spirit likes to zero in on all the faults and all the flaws of church members so that I can pray for them, right? And I, I can focus on those things. So when Paul inserts himself in this situation, he does so having focused on, by preparation in prayer, focused on the strength and the maturity of his friend Philemon, as opposed to 
zeroing in on his weaknesses. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for what you have made him, as opposed to, Lord, he's really got a long ways to go. I hope you fix him so that he is somewhat functional. So when Paul does ask for something on, in verse 6, when, when Paul says, Lord, I want you to do this for Philemon, it's this in verse 6. It's, Lord, help the, help the good things that are already in him be better communicated for the sake of the church. And then in verse 7, Paul speaks of Philemon's ministry to his own heart. Philemon, when you serve your brothers and sisters in Christ so well, it, it just gives me so much joy. And that's how Paul's heart is prepared to work with Philemon. And that preparation really sets the tone of the entire letter. Philemon is an encouragement to him. He's, he's thankful for him. No doubt he's a sinner. He has his shortcomings, but that's really not what Paul is focused on. He, he's thinking of Philemon in a positive light, and you can sense that from the beginning to the end of this letter. So that's number one, as we walk into potentially explosive situations, just be prepared. Second, be intimate. Be intimate. Leaders in crises like this need to be intimate with people. There's, there's always a temptation to try to rise above the fray, not insert ourselves in a personal, intimate way. Uh, unfortunately, relationships in a church are often shallow because intimacy takes time. It takes vulnerability. It exposes our faults and our flaws in rather uncomfortable ways. But we know that Paul was intimate with Philemon because he knew him well enough to know exactly even how he would respond to this letter. Verse 21, I, I know that you will do even more than, than I say. Paul was someone who knew people and knew them well and got intimately acquainted with them. He, he speaks with a lightness and a freedom in this little book and even with humor that, that just can't exist when when you're talking to someone that you don't know. For instance, look in verse 8 and 9. Paul says, Though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for, for Christ Jesus. Now what's this old man and prisoner business doing here? Well, I think it's really this. I think this is all he's saying. Oh, my good friend, you wouldn't say no to an old man sitting in prison, would you? Would you? This, is just, this is sort of a friendly little guilt trip. Instead of dropping this hammer of divine authority, I, Paul, the apostle, which he would do to the Corinthians and to the Galatians in order to push their obedience along, he says, it's just me. Old Paul the prisoner, try saying no to that. He's stirring sympathy in Philemon, but in such a way that, that his friend would have to smile and say, okay, fine. If you put it that way, sure, sure, I'm in. I, I think there's a twinkle in Paul's eye down in verse 21 when he says, I know that you're going to do even more than I say, and I'm coming to visit you. Okay, I'll, I'll be checking in. I'll, I'm going to stop in and make sure you're going to do what I say. And then he, he follows that up with, in verse 22, I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Which means, thank you so much for praying that I get out of prison. As soon as I get out, I'm coming to see you and make sure that you do everything I want you to do. So thanks, keep praying, brother. I'm almost out, so I can come and check up on you. It's not threatening language to Philemon, I don't think. He's just speaking as, as a friend to a friend uh, in a way that you really can't do unless you really know who you're talking to. 
And so part of the responsibility that leadership has in moments of crises is to know the people they're working with, to have that kind of personal relationship that allows potentially explosive issues to be really handled with grace and tenderness and a little bit of humor. The third is to be risky. To be risky. Those in leadership need to be willing to take risks by inserting themselves into situations that need their input. In other words, Paul has the option of, he could have not even written this letter, right? He could have not sent any sort of letter to Philemon at all. The problems weren't directly his. And really getting himself involved only, only risked the problem spoiling some of his own relationships. And so here's th- three things I think Paul risks in this letter. And that is he risks his relationships. Anytime you step into a conflict situation, there's a chance you lose a friend. I hope you know that I do. And perhaps you've lost friends, as have I. And anytime you enter into somebody else's business, there's a chance that things just don't go well. Philemon could have been really upset at Paul for taking Onesimus' side, right? Let's not forget that the victim here was Philemon, and if Paul is going to go to bat for the offender, it could hurt the feelings of his friend. He could have been standing up for the legal rights of his friend Philemon. There's probably a lot of ways this particular situation could have escalated and gone really sour. And in almost any of those scenarios, Paul and Philemon's friendship is strained or even broken. Paul is really sticking his neck out for Onesimus here. He's putting his friendship with Philemon entirely on the line for this this new brother of his. But isn't it a wonderful picture that, that... The Apostle Paul should risk his friendship with a wealthy, influential leader of the church for a destitute, runaway slave. Doesn't it really exalt the position of Onesimus in our eyes that the Apostle Paul himself would be willing to to risk his relationship with his friend Philemon for this runaway slave's sake? A brother in Christ, like Onesimus, is a brother for eternity. And your brothers and your sisters are your brothers and sisters for eternity, despite what our social status might be for the next few years. Paul references this in verse 16. You're going to have him back as more than a slave. You're going to have him back as a a brother. So we risk our relationships. We risk comfort. We, We all want peace in our relationships. And one of the ways that we can maintain that is to not only avoid conflicts that might involve us, but really to intentionally keep our distance from conflicts that don't directly involve us. And this doesn't mean that we should stick our nose in in every bit of trouble that comes along, but particularly as, as leaders, there needs to be a place where you're willing to do this. Paul is potentially going to end up at odds with the guy who owns the house the Colossian church meets in. And what does that mean then for his relationship with the believers there? Part of, part of leadership, and this is why Paul is writing, part of leadership is just handling the heavy stuff. As I've gotten older, I've got to sit on boards here and there and have various positions of leadership. And I used to think that people gave you positions of leadership, you know, just kind of as a trophy for reaching the top of the spiritual ladder. Like, you seem like you got it all together here. Why don't you be in charge of something? And, and wow, that's great. Now I get to be the boss. But here's what I've found out. Leadership really exists just to handle problems. It's, that's, that's why you're there. Here, you take charge of that. So then all the problems are now yours. 
You don't become a leader so you get to do things the way you want to do them. You don't get to become a leader so you can boss people around. There's really not much fun about leadership. You handle problems. You get involved in problems. You're responsible for problems that other people don't have to. You're responsible for fixing things. And sometimes you just get torched. And that happened occasionally to the Apostle Paul. But here he's risking his comfort and jumping into a problem. He's risking this peaceful relationship with the entire Colossian church and his friend, not to mention, verse 2, Philemon's wife, Aphia, and his son, Archippus. And so depending on how Philemon reacts, this could be wildly agonizing for Paul, but that's just the nature of leadership in times of crises. Thirdly, we risk resources, risk resources, in verse 18 and 19, you got this other little wink and nod from the Apostle Paul. When he says, If he has wronged you in any way or owed you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I don't think this is an empty promise. Uh, if Philemon insisted on it, Paul really would have paid Philemon back. He would have made tents or whatever it would have taken because likely Onesimus stole some stuff on his way out. Uh, if you're going to leave, you might as well leave with your pockets full, and that's no doubt what Onesimus did. So here's what Paul does. He puts himself between his friends. One of his friends is a debtor, and one was flat out robbed. Uh, and so Paul takes Onesimus' debt on himself. You, you see that there in verse 18. Maybe we could ask then, well, would Onesimus owe Paul something? And the answer to that is almost certainly no way. No way. Paul is going to take this debt on himself. He's not going to hold it over Onesimus' head. Paul loves his young friend. He is ready and willing to put himself on the line here. And so if, if Philemon wants to collect, he can't collect from Onesimus without really offending Paul, right? He's put Philemon in the place where, where he can't go wring it out of Onesimus' neck without really offending Paul. So Paul just says, if you need your money back, I'll give it to you, signed old Paul, the prisoner, right? But look at the second half of verse 19. Not to mention that you owe to me even your own self as well. So before you go collecting this debt, my dear friend, before you send me the bill, let's talk about debts for a moment. You owe me your eternal soul. Now this is part of leadership. Risking everything for the sake of a brother, but at the same time never losing sight of what is truly important and refusing to let everyone else lose sight of what is eternally important because Philemon goes to hell if Paul doesn't bring him the gospel. That's the long and short of it here. Let me say a word about this idea of the debt of oneself. This might sound strange in, in your ears because... At some point, particularly here in the States, I think, we started thinking about Christianity as a product that we market and we try to make other people buy into it. And we sort of lost sight of the fact that the gospel is a valuable treasure that we can give to other people. We instead offer it as a product that if they want it, they can buy into it cheap you would be eternally doomed to torment if someone didn't bring the gospel to you, as would I. And so there's a sense in which we owe that person our eternal soul. And so really everyone in, in, in a church is in some sense ministering to and being ministered 
by to by the other members of the church. You serve each other. You are served by each other. There's a very real sense in which we're all in in each other's debt. I don't know if this is the way it is here. I doubt it is, but I know uh, at times in my life, uh, you'll, I'll see these little five, ten, twelve dollar checks sort of floating around as all the people in the congregation try to keep all their finances even. Like I bought you this book and it cost this much, and and here's some eggs, and and, and we sort of share things, but we got to make sure that the money stays. And we keep really close accounts. Let's not forget that by virtue of being brothers and sisters and ministering to each other in church, we all have a great debt to each other. And so Paul, Paul talks like this. Look, if you want to wring it out of Onesimus' neck, fine. I'm going to cover for him. But before you wring it out of my neck, don't forget that you owe me your soul. And I think he does that with a wink and a nod. And Philemon, what's, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? He's going to pull it out of old Paul in prison. I doubt it. Number four, be gently authoritative. We're going to be risky. Gently authoritative is number four. Paul takes pains to be as gentle as possible. He avoids outright telling Philemon what to do. You see that in verse eight. I I could order you to do what's proper, but instead I'm going to appeal to you. I think that's that's kind of amusing to me. When you say, or when Paul says, I'm so comfortable with my apostolic authority that I know I could order you and to refuse me would be to refuse the Lord Jesus but I'm just going to ask you nicely okay the fact that he says he could do it is sort of like doing it but not quite he just says I could do this but I'm not going to I'm just going to ask you nicely and I think the idea is if you don't respond when I ask you nicely then I'll bring the big hammer and drop it on you so the sort of Damocles is there he just sort of hides it a little bit In verse 14, Paul says, Without your consent, I didn't want to do anything so that your goodness would be, in effect, not by compulsion, but of your own free will. This is being very gentle. I'm not going to push you. I'm going to give you the chance to do the right thing of your own free will. But that's not, of course, to say that he couldn't be more forceful or wouldn't be if needed. I think that's a good model for those of us in leadership. Be gentle, but don't entirely abandon it your God-given positions of authority. See, you don't have to walk into every situation flashing that mighty sword of Hebrews 13, 7, submit to your elders who keep watch over your souls. But don't leave that sword rusting in the rain either. Be as gentle as possible. But do so from a position of authority. Don't use all your authority until you've exhausted this appeal of love and gentleness like Paul is doing, but we don't want to abandon it either. And so that's what Paul does here. He masterfully makes it clear that he could order, but he's not going to. I think that's what he's doing in verse 22 when he says he's coming to visit. I'm just going to check up, see how you're doing, make sure that you're doing this right, so don't screw it up because I'm coming because you're praying for me, so thanks for that. Number five, stress the significance of Christian brotherhood. Stress the significance of Christian brotherhood. My wife and I were talking about this on our way up a little bit. Uh, because of a family conflict that, that we're aware of. The worst conflict is family conflict, isn't it? Uh, the tightest bonds are family bonds, and when those are broken, they hurt the worst. And so Philemon understands, I think, the value of brotherhood. Philemon's ministry to the saints was profound. 
Philemon is going to be stretched, though, when one of those saints that he... Look, you, you look in verse 5. Philemon loves and ministers to the saints. He, verse 7, refreshes their hearts. And that's all well and good until the person that you have to minister to is somebody who ripped you off. And it's now your Christian brother. Now, in verse 7, in verse 7, when, when Paul says, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother, the Greek word there for heart is not the typical word for heart, cardia, like Jesus usually uses. It, it's a word that literally means your, your guts. Uh, it's... Um, if you have a King James, the word is translated bowels. It's the innards of a person. My grandmother, I think, got as close to this in common English as anybody that I know. And she used to say, that just tickles my gizzard. You may have heard that phrase. Um, the Greek word is splonkna, which always sounded like guts to me. I, I don't know why. My, my grandfather was a master at phrases. He died about 16 years ago, but one of his favorite little phrases was, and he usually used it when he was talking about Bill Clinton, he would say, that guy's as crooked as a pan of guts. And so I have that metaphor in my mind, and, and that's tied to splankna. It's the one Greek word I've learned, I've never forgotten it, because splankna is, anyway, grandma's gizzard, grandpa's guts. Here, this is, you know, we have to make, we have to make things seem uh, a little more, uh, upper class, so we use the word hearts, but really it's, it's the innards, it's, it's the guts of a person. Now, there's a little thread of humor that runs through this, because he refers to the guts three times in this little letter. First is here in verse 7, when he says, the hearts of the saints, the guts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. You are a guts refresher, my dear friend Philemon. You just refresh the guts, the innards of everyone you meet. And then in verse 12, Paul says, I have sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very guts. That's, what, that's the word, the same word. I've, I'm sending my splankna back. This is part of the wonder of brotherhood that Paul would refer to Onesimus as his, as his splankna, as his bowels, his guts. I'm not just going to send you my friend. I'm sending you my guts, Mr. Guts Refresher, right? Guts Refresher, sending you my guts. Verse 20, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my, and there it is again, refresh my guts, okay? So you bring me great joy, verse 7, you old guts refresher, you. Verse 12, I'm going to send you my guts, and verse 20, refresh them, okay? Part of the way that Paul talks with with his brother. He's working off of Philemon's strength as one who encourages the saints. I'm going to send you a saint. It's a saint that's so near and dear to me. He basically is me. Refresh him. And of course, in verse 16, as we've already mentioned, Paul works off that explicit notion of brotherhood. But he's careful to mention that Onesimus is now brother to both of them. And I think that's, I think that's significant. I I have two brothers. We've got this sort of three-way drama going on here in Philemon. And I, I have two brothers, and I've found that I cannot be at odds with one of my brothers without being at odds with the other. Perhaps the Carlton boys can say the same thing. You can't fight with one without wind up fighting against the other. 
and they can't either. They can't, one of them can't pick on me without ticking off the other one. So you have this sort of three-way brotherhood between apostle, a master who's robbed, and this newly converted slave. And the idea here in verse 16 is that they're all brothers now. So Philemon, don't forget that Onesimus is your brother and he's my brother. And so if you treat him bad, remember he's my brother too. Paul, of course, tells the Corinthians that when one member suffers, all the members suffers. And in the church, when one relationship is strained and goes sour, all of them are strained. We shouldn't live at odds with each other in part because the effects of those conflicts just stretches out far beyond our immediate problem. And that's the wonder of the tightness of Christian brotherhood. It's really a powerful tool for holding things together, but it can be a powerfully destructive force when it's violated. Number six, help the weak. Try to wrap up here. Help the weak. Onesimus, really vulnerable here. He's a slave. He has no legal protection against any form of punishment Philemon might want to inflict on him. You could have a runaway slave crucified. And so Onesimus has no resources. And really, he has no testimony to his changed life other than this letter. You think about it. Onesimus might know that Philemon is a Christian and show up one day on the doorstep and say, it's okay, I'm a Christian now. And Philemon would say, how do I know that? Well, it's pretty helpful to have a letter from the Apostle Paul in your hand. And those, those who are in positions of leadership, like Paul here, have been given the gift of credibility and authority, and, and those are gifts that we should use not to benefit ourselves, but to use them on behalf of the weak and, and the helpless that's one of the reasons God gave parents authority, so they can exercise it for the good of their kids. And elders, particularly, have authority in the church in order to help those who, who need it. And so Paul is using his position as a man of great credibility and great authority to help his younger brother Onesimus, who has none of those. One of the ways Paul does this is in verse 11, when, when he writes to Philemon, this, this Onesimus was formerly useless to you, but now he's useful to you and me. It's another wink and a nod because Onesimus means useful, which was a great misnomer, uh, like calling a bald guy hairy or something like that. Uh, Onesimus was really about as useful as dial-up internet is anymore. Uh, maybe he was lazy. Uh, maybe he was just a scoundrel. We know that stealing stuff and running away isn't very useful. So he really wasn't that good of a slave. And so Paul goes to bat for him here. He's a different guy now. He really is useful. He's, he's been useful to me. And that, I think, is a really powerful testimony to the genuineness of Onesimus' conversion. It would have been far more meaningful than Onesimus just giving his own. And lastly, focus on eternity. As we walk into crisis situations, or potentially crisis situations, we focus on, on eternity. There's there's a really good reason that God is far more concerned that leaders in the church be spiritually mature more than worldly wise. God is way more concerned that, that leaders be spiritually mature than they be worldly wise. We didn't need a secular judge in this particular case. We need a good, godly perspective. And Paul offers that up in verse 15 to 16. When he says, maybe... He, Onesimus, was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. And you notice the juxtaposition, don't you, between lost him for a while and have him back forever. He's holding those two up. 
And he's considering the workings of divine providence. Maybe this is why this happened. Philemon, what happened to you was, was bad. It was hurtful and it was wrong for Onesimus to leave you and steal your stuff on the way out the door. But I want you to remember, maybe God did this so that he would run into me and he would be converted and you'd have him back forever. And this is part of what mature spiritual leadership does. It thinks with eternity in view and helps put all the little temporal problems that that come our way in light of a bigger picture. And when you get him back, verse 16, you get him no longer as a slave, and that's the closest we can find for Paul calling for him to be emancipated, but it's really kind of a weak push at best. You get him back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a slave plus, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you? And I think this is Paul's point. Better to be robbed by a slave who runs away for a little while if the end result is that you gain a brother for all eternity. That's the perspective that the Apostle Paul is working on here. All right, I'm just going to stop right there. And uh, I encourage you to just sort of marinate yourself in this book. Read it again from Philemon's perspective. Read it again from Onesimus' perspective. Um, but just a wonderful little book, almost whimsical. But it gives us some great insight on just interpersonal relationships, dealing with each other as people, which is, isn't it good to know that people struggled with each other 2,000 years ago or 1,960 years ago? We're not the first ones that have little fights and squabbles. You're not. My church isn't. Um, uh, the other churches that I've been a part of aren't uh, the ones that... It's just part of human nature. And this happened here, and, and by God's grace, we, we work at it. We work at getting better at it. We work on our brotherhood and so on and so forth. All right, let me stop. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for these dear folks and their kind attention to your word. Pray that you would help us to be Pauline in times of potential conflict, to act wisely, gently, carefully. Uh, pray that you would help us to be like Philemon when we are offended and when we are wrong. We pray that you would uh, help us as Onesimuses in our own right to be faithful servants, faithful stewards of the tasks that you have given to us. Thank you for conversion in Christ. Thank you for new life. Thank you for eternal brotherhood. Father, we are not mighty masters here. We are not great leaders of men. We are almost invisible in the eyes of this world, tucked away here in the uh, dark corners of Minnesota. But we have a tremendous brotherhood in Christ with each other, with the entire church. We look forward to the day when we get to enjoy that brotherhood in full sweetness around the throne of Christ, our elder brother. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.